0: Lord, we love you and we worship you with every breath, with every beat of our heart, every thought, every move we make. We worship you. We also know that you call us together to worship corporately as the body of Christ. What an awesome invitation! We don't take it lightly, and we can come and do this only because of what Christ has done. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to present ourselves worthy, but simply to say yes to our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your body, and we are your church locally. We are your presence here. We are the community of Christ and often the world is going to see no other picture of you except what they see in us. Lord, may your spirit work miracles in us as we share your love with the world. We know that you do miracles moment by moment and even today as we hear your word spoken You are bringing us a powerful message and may our hearts be receptive. Thank you, Lord, that we are amongst a body where there are men who are standing up and saying, yes, Lord, I will be what you made me to be by your strength and power. I will stand in a protective way for those around me, for my family, for my brothers. Lord, for our daughters, we have a coming opportunity to honor them. And what beauty you have placed in every one of these women in our lives. We give you thanks. So we give you our day, Lord. We anticipate wonderful things through your Holy Spirit. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, Brian, are you ever looking good today? What's the deal?
1: Well, thank you, John. I, I figure I better, you know, practice and work on this looking nice thing.
0: Did you, you know? go to grooming school this week?
1: <laughs> I, I probably should. <laughs> I should, yeah. I oh, you're looking They're telling good, me though. I should be groomed. I should cut yeah. my hair.
0: And, and what's with the extra shirt?
1: Well, I was going to say that you look pretty snazzy yourself, like well, you're ready you, for some shindig. Noticed. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, I have this so shirt. So what's
0: coming up? What's the event?
1: Well, there's an event for dads to take their daughters.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember that 24th of this month, month, yes. And
1: the cool thing about this shirt and tie that I have is even though the tie is from the 80s, the shirt and tie is cool because you might want to swap a shirt or a tie with another guy in the church just because, you know, mix it up. Like if I get tired of this outfit, I might want to mix it up a little bit.
0: So if you have a tie, bring it to my office. That's right. Or you need to borrow a tie or a shirt check with me and come to my office. We'll see what we can do.
1: That's right. Now I see you're carrying a packet there. What's the packet?
0: Well, I want to first say before the packet, okay. it's time to get registered and you can do that online. That's right. You can pay online. But men, note this. Before you go online to buy the ticket, check with your date to see what color her dress or her slack outfit is going to be. Ask, actually, ask her her preference. Would you rather have a a red rose corsage, or a white rose corsage, and then you will have uh, opportunity to pick a a bow color. So you need to know those things before you go online to purchase those tickets. I myself found myself on the telephone this morning with my daughter in Minnesota who's going to come here and uh, do the banquet with me. And then I have a daughter-in-law who lives on the hillside now, and I was on the phone with her. So check with those ladies. You want to be... On the money with uh, the color. And
1: I was being challenged this morning that they hadn't seen my name registered with my daughter, so Ah, I got to get rolling.
0: You need to get there. Then, once you get registered, you buy your tickets. Men, you'll get this packet. It's full of good information, gives you the whole picture of what we're doing, the schedule, tickets, and a special card that you can give to your daughter as an invitation. So, when should they do that? ASAP. ASAP. Thank you. Thank
1: you, John.
2: I'm excited about it, I'm taking my daughters there. It's going to be a great night. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. What I'd like to do as we get started is I want to remind you of two facts about the sixth chapter of Romans that we have seen as we've walked through this chapter verse by verse. We're coming now this morning to Romans chapter 6, verse 20. But we have seen a couple of key truths that have risen up, stood out as we've walked through Romans chapter 6. So let me just highlight those quickly here, get you back into the context uh, after a week. And for those of you that are drifting here thinking about the Super Bowl, maybe we'll try to rein you back in here for a minute. Actually, we probably don't have much of the Super Bowl crowd here (laughs) in the Second Service. First reminder is this. Romans chapter 6 is divided into two sections. And it's a pretty clear division. The break is section 1, 1 to 14, section 2, 15 to 23. And what happens is that Paul asks two questions, one in verse 1 and again in verse 15. Let me just read those quickly. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is not Paul's opinion. This is the opinion of some who heard his teachings about free grace and drew the conclusion, the wrong conclusion that is being stated here in verse 1. And so what he does in verses 2 through 14 is that he refutes that statement. And then he comes to verse 15, and he gives an almost identical statement. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And his answer is, by no means. So what Paul has done in chapter 6 is that he wrote this chapter to refute the wrong conclusions that some or many were drawing from his teaching about the free grace of God that comes only through the meritorious work and death of Jesus Christ. He is trying to establish the truth that defeats the lie, and the lie basically is this, grace sanctions sin. If you look at those two questions, verse 1 and verse 15, basically that's the underlying theme that some were grabbing from Paul's teaching, saying, well, if grace wins the day, if grace rises up when sin exerts itself and grace rises up in overwhelming all victorious power and defeats that sin, then here's what we should do. We should sin, giving grace more opportunity to get the victory. And so Romans chapter 6 is Paul's answer to that lie. That's a key truth to unlocking the truth to Romans chapter 6. Here is the second reminder that we have seen as we have walked through Romans chapter 6 and the last half of chapter 5. Paul has been over and over and over again driving this truth home. He has been calling believers, followers of Christ, to live a holy, righteous life. And he is basing that command, that call, upon the doctrine, upon the understanding of the believer's unity with Jesus Christ. Let me say that, try to say that another way. Paul, in making the call, toward holy living for Christians, he is saying over and over again, the key to you living a holy life is that you first must understand what you have when you have Christ or what is true about you when you were saved and baptized into Jesus Christ. That if you understand who you are in Christ, it is going to be a master key that is going to unlock for you the compelling motivation and the courage and the equipping to live a life not defeated by and under the control of sin, but to live a life of victory that glorifies God and points other people to Jesus Christ. That has... Then his theme, and ladies and gentlemen, that is always the way the New Testament couches this call toward holiness or sanctification, which means the Christian growth. But it's always couched in the terms of understanding who you are in Christ. Because if you do not understand that, it's a fatalistic attempt. Before you even make the effort and get started to try to live a holy life, if you do not understand what has been given to you and the power and the resources that are all available to you, then it will be extremely difficult to make progress in holy living. So those are the two key ideas. What the chapter is about It's defeating the lie that grace sanctions sin and instead promoting the truth that grace actually advances and secures holiness by helping us understand who we are in Christ. So we're going to jump in. Verse 20. As we do that, remember of what the command was of verse 19. In verse 19, Paul gave a command to followers of Christ. And he wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote to Cornerstone Church, believers in Christ here. He wrote that we should present the members of our bodies as slaves. To righteousness, that we should present the members of our body, members meaning not just including but not just meaning the physical members, components of our bodies, but all of the faculties that go into making up who we are, like the emotions and the mind, all those things that are a part of us that through which we communicate and engage our world. That we are to present all of those to God to be lived out as slavery to righteousness. That's the command. And so, what he's going to do here in verses 21 all the way down to verse 24 or 23, the end of the chapter, is that he's going to tell us why we should do that. He's going to say, to us here are the reasons that you should give your life wholesale all of your members all of your faculties to God in s- service as a slave to righteousness it is the only reasonable conclusion that you should make in light of the grace of God that's what he's going to explain as he backs up the command of verse 19 so let's jump into verse 20. And what he's doing here is he is continuing to talk about slavery. He's been talking about that throughout the last half of chapter 6. Matter of fact, let me give you just rapid fire at least four things that we have talked about in past weeks about Slavery as it's related to humanity. Here they are. Number one, there are two slave masters over humanity and only two. God and sin or sin and righteousness. Righteousness being used kind of interchangeably for God. So righteousness or God is one and sin. Two slave masters. Here's the second truth. All of humanity... Is a slave to one of those two. All of humanity is a slave to one or to the other. If you are a slave, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness or a slave to God. Here's the third truth slaves do their master's bidding. Slaves do their master's bidding. That means that if you're a slave of sin, you're going to do what your master sin requires. And that is what? You're going to... Wow, got a, two smart ones here. You're going to sin. You're going to sin. If, you're, if sin is your master, you are under the control, under the bondage, under the domination of sin outside of Christ before you accepted Christ or without Christ, then that slave master is going to get you to do what he demands that you do, and what he demands that you do is sin. And if you're a slave to God or a slave of righteousness, what you are going to do is you're going to obey that master. You're going to obey righteousness. You're going to do right. You're going to do right. Put those three together, and here's the conclusion, point number four, about slavery and humanity. It's this. What you do in life points to which slave master you serve. Undeniably, unarguably, just look at your life. Your life will point to the fact that you either serve Sin or you serve righteousness. The life does not lie. Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. You can look at the external trappings of the tree. You might come up to a tree and not know what it is, try to examine it by looking at the trunk, looking at the leaves. But if you see an apple hanging on the branch, you know what? It's an apple tree. The fruit determines the root. You want to know who your slave master is? Look at the external trappings of your life. They point to who your master is. So now, let's look and continue the text in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to To righteousness. Paul tells us something specific here about the slave of sin. I want you to notice it here. Verse 20, he says that those who are slaves to sin are free to what? Free to righteousness. Free in regard to righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Be careful that you don't misunderstand what that means. It doesn't mean this. Paul is not saying that if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never done anything right. That's not what he's saying. I know a lot of people who haven't accepted Christ as their Savior that do right things. That would clearly not be a true statement. Here is what Paul is saying. If you keep the statement in its context, it makes perfect sense. And the context is this. One of two slaveries, either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And those two slaveries are categorically, diametrically opposed to one another. They are polar opposites, meaning you cannot serve one, And also serve the other. You are either the slave of the one or the slave of the other. So if you are a slave of sin, verse 20, here's what that means. You are not a slave of righteousness. You are free in regard to righteousness. It's just another way of saying the same thing. If you're a slave of sin, you're not under the control of righteousness. You're not under the dominion and the influence of righteousness. In fact, righteousness really has nothing to do with your life if you're a slave of sin. Now let's look a little deeper into what that righteousness is because here's what we can do. From the perspective of humanity... We can look around at each other or the world can look around and they can make a judgment about who is righteous and who is not, like grading on a curve. How many of you liked when the teacher graded on a curve in your class? (laughs) Grading on a curve is a comparison not to an ultimate standard but to everyone else around you. Are you better than they are? And what humanity can do is they can look at someone that is really kind of diving deep into the vices of sin in open, outward, gross rebellion, and someone who lives a relatively moral life, someone who is fairly self-controlled, disciplined, and they can say, wow, That's a righteous person, and the person down there in the depths of sin is really totally unrighteous. So the judgment can be made based upon a comparison man to man, woman to woman. That's not the righteousness that verse 20 is talking about when it says that those who are slaves to sin are free from righteousness. The righteousness that is the subject of Romans chapter, well, of all of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. And that is a very different thing than the righteousness in in man's eyes. God's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. It is a holy righteousness. It is a righteousness that is all good and no bad, that is transcendent, that is above sin. And the standard that is set up for humanity in order to have a relationship with God is the standard not of mankind's righteousness but of God's righteousness. So if you take the person that is living much higher on a level of human righteousness than someone in the dregs of humanity, but then you take that person that is moral and you compare them to God Is this person righteous? Absolutely not. So what Paul is saying here is that the individual that has not been saved, that is a slave to sin, has never come to Christ to be forgiven and freed from sin. That person is free from righteousness or free in regard to righteousness completely separated from righteousness and its control and its dominion and its guidance over their life. Why? Because they have a totally different slave master and that slave master is sin. And that slave master is diametrically opposed to the slave master called righteousness. Now with that set up, we're going to jump into verse 21 and here in verse 21 Paul is going to look into the life of the slave of righteousness. And we're going we're to follow Paul's lead and ask the question of us that Paul is asking of his readers. Remember Why we're doing this is so that Paul here can reason with us about why it is we should live a holy life. Keep that in your mind. He is presenting a logical progression here of why we should present the members of our lives to God as slaves to righteousness or to living right. And so what he does is he comes to the Roman Christian and he's coming to us today through his letter and he's saying, I want you to consider something. Notice here in verse 21 that Paul is dealing with three aspects of time. Verse 21 has three aspects of time. The first aspect is seen in the phrase, at that time, in the second line down. That is referring to what Paul is doing there is he's telling the believer there in Rome, I want you to consider back when you were unsaved. Back when you were living that unsaved life, at that time when you were a slave of sin, I want you to consider something. And then secondly, this phrase. From the things of which you are now ashamed. From the things of which you are now ashamed. He's talking there in the present. And what he's saying there in the present is what I want you to consider here is not what fruit you got from sin back there, but what kind of fruit is produced right now today from the sinful life you used to live. How is that life in the past blessing you right here today? And then he jumps to the future For the end of those things is death. He is looking to the end, to the future, and saying, what is the fruit of sin going to be then? So I want to ask those three questions in those three time frames of you and I. So we need to do this in two ways. If you're a follower of Christ, we're going to ask you, what fruit did you get from sin back when you were living as a slave of sin outside of Christ? What fruit are you receiving now from that past life? And thirdly, what is going to be the ultimate end of sin, a life of slavery to sin? If you're not a follower of Christ, really that can all be summed up uh, in just a couple of statements. One is, what fruit are you getting right now? from living a life of sin. And what is it going to be in the end? What is it going to be in the end? Now, as we jump into this, I want to tell you that one of the benefits of preaching a series, preaching right through a book, is I'm not picking the topics. God's picking the topics. And so I'm just going to follow the sequence of the inspired text. And so what you're going to get today is a a message about a subject that a lot of people don't like to hear about. But you need to hear about it. You need to hear about it because your eternal destiny hinges upon which of these two groups you are in. So first question. Regarding... Your life in the past before Christ at that time. What fruit did sin produce for those who are slaves of sin? If you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, what fruit is sin producing in your life right now? What is the benefit being gained? Look back on your life. Christian, look back on your life before you were saved. Look back on your patterns of sin, your habits of sin, the things that you reveled in. What was the benefit, the fruit that you gained back then from those things? Here's what sin does. And obviously... I'm speaking from experience here. Here's what sin does. It promises you so much and delivers so little. Can anybody say amen to that? Wow, that is a true statement. Young people, if you haven't found that out yet, you're going to find out. You are going to find out. Instead of deep satisfaction, which sin promises what it does is it leaves you longing for more. Amen? Instead of providing fulfillment, what it does is it increases your emptiness. Sin offers you the world and then steals away everything of value that you hold if you pursue it sin is sweet on the tongue, and then it turns sour in the stomach. Paul is trying to tell us here, he's trying to give us an accurate picture of reality in relationship to sin, and he is asking the Christian, just think about it. Just think about it. You know. Go back to your own experience the truth will rise up in your heart and your mind. You know this is true. Sin is a bag of empty promises that leaves you far worse than you ever were after you bought the bait. That's not all that sin does Leaves you without peace. Sin leaves you without peace. When you were pursuing a life of sin, when I was pursuing a life of sin, do you remember that voice in your conscience? Said, What are you doing? Not right. You ever had that thought of wow? What if I were to die today? Would I be ready? Would I be ready to stand before my God? And you see what we do in our lost state when that voice begins to echo in our ears. We try to turn up the noise of life to try to drown it out. Another thing that we do is we try to gather as many people around us as we can who are doing the same thing that we're doing so that by sheer volume of numbers it'll help convince us that what we're doing is okay. But the voice is there. And when The door is shut at night and the lights are turned out and the quietness there, there's the voice of the conscience and there's no peace in the heart, no peace in the heart. So question number one, what fruit did sin produce? Here's question number two based upon this statement, from the things of which you are now ashamed. So here's the context. For those of you who are saved, looking back at your life of sin, standing here in the present, are you receiving benefits and fruit today based upon your sinful activities of the past? Would you trade the fleeting gratifications of those sins, if you could remove those things from your history? Would you do that? Would you give up what sin gave you back then if you could give up the pain and the heartache that came with it? Maybe your life was not a life that was kind of peddled to the metal into the vices of sin. Maybe you were a moral person. Maybe you were a fairly disciplined, self-controlled individual. What I do know about you is that you were living for yourself. You were living for the things that this world could provide seeking to find satisfaction and fulfillment. That much, at least, I do know. As you spent your energies, the energies of your youth and your time and resources on those things of the world, as you stand here in this day and look back to that day, would you say this? Man, I would trade all that I got for those things. Earthly pursuits, all of those earthly treasures, all of those temporal things, I would trade them in for the riches of heaven that I could have gained had I been pursuing the things of God. Would you make that trade? I think, folks, if we saw this rightly, we would give up any earthly thing, any earthly treasure, if we could even wipe off one black mark on our list, if we could even... Gain one reward in heaven that is for eternity and give up everything that this world would offer. Here's what Jesus said. Woe to the man who gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. Then Paul comes to question number three or I'm going to couch it in a question, looking to the future. The statement is, for the end of those things is death. Here's the question. What is the ultimate fruit of sin? What is the ultimate fruit of sin? And Paul gives the answer, and the answer is what? It's death. That word is calling out to us, saying, pay close attention to me. Because what this word is pointing to is a doctrine. It's a doctrine. It's a doctrine that is not fun to hear about, but one that you desperately need to hear about. The meaning of the word death here is not referring simply to or even primarily to physical death. This is referring to spiritual death. And spiritual death, biblically defined, is this. It is an eternal separation from God existing in an eternal hell. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God existing in an eternal hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said this, they will suffer, talking about those in hell or who are condemned to hell, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot explain this adequately, nor can anyone this side of eternity. But the most terrifying thing about hell is utter and absolute separation from God. We have no idea what that means. No idea. But that is the truth of Scripture. They will be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The concept here in this word is eternal misery. Let me say what it is not to make it clearer. It is not annihilation. The concept here is not annihilation. And I can back that up quickly and biblically. First of all, I can back it up right here in the immediate text, right in this text that we're studying here. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul doing here? He is setting a contrast between two things, between the believer's blessing and the unbeliever's punishment. The wages of sin is death, unbeliever's punishment. But the gift of God is eternal life, the believer's blessing or reward. He is setting them in contrast or in juxtaposition with one another. In other words, the inference is this if the blessing on the righteous side is eternal life, the blessing or the punishment on the sinful side is eternal death. They are both eternal. That's why the contrast between the two works. Let me make it even more explicit in the words of Jesus Christ himself. Description that Jesus Christ gave about hell. He told the story of the end day, judgment day, when all of the nations would be gathered before him and mankind would be separated like in this room left and right. Now, I'm not making a judgment about anybody on the left here, okay? Those on the left, Christ says, are those basically who have not accepted Christ. They are in their sin, they're lost. Those on the right are those who have accepted Christ, his forgiveness, have been made righteous with the righteousness of God. And then Jesus says something to those on the left He talks about the future of the unsaved. Listen carefully. Matthew 5 Matthew 25 verse 41. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I want to show you three things about hell right here. Three truths right here in this one verse. This is not all the truths about hell, but these are three key truths. First of all, Jesus says, depart from me. Same truth in 2 Thessalonians nine. The future state of the unsaved is away from the presence of Christ, away from the presence of God, totally, completely. Number two, into the eternal fire. Ladies and gentlemen, the fire is eternal because the place of punishment is eternal. Number three, listen very carefully to this. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen, hell was not prepared for mankind. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, Satan and his demons. And God does not want humanity to go there. In fact, He is so adamant that we not go there that He sent His own Son to a cross to die and pay for sin, to jump in front of hell, to jump in front of you and say, don't go there. The cross of Christ shouts down through history. It shouts out the love of God and says, Hell is not for you. I made another place for you and a way for you to get there. And the way for you to get there is through Jesus Christ. But God will not stop you from going there. He's given you the choice. you can can choose to reject his son, refuse the gift of grace that he wants to lavish upon your life. And if you choose that way, in the brokenness of his heart, he'll let you go. But it wasn't prepared for you. Just one more statement about the longevity of hell. Speaking again to those on his left, Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There it is stated directly, explicitly, clearly, undeniable. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no meaning of eternal punishment that equals annihilation, none. Those who equate this eternal punishment with annihilation, they do so in word alone, and they do not annihilate the reality of a real, literal hell. It's there. Now, what I want to do is I want to remind you of the flow here as I start to work toward a conclusion. I want to to remind you of the logical sequence that Paul is setting in place here. He says to you, I want you to think back to the time before you were saved under sin's control. I want you to remember sin's empty promises I want you to consider the present and what are the benefits of sin that you are receiving right now from how you used to live in sin. Is it paying you any dividends right now or would you gladly, willingly trade everything that sin gave back then for more opportunity to pursue righteousness? And then finally, Paul says, I want you to consider what's coming. I want you to consider the eternal nature of your destination. And in light of all of that, Paul is saying, I want to say to you, in light of all of that, doesn't it make sense, verse 19, that you offer the members of your body as a slave to righteousness. Doesn't that make sense that you would do that based upon the grace of God that saved you out of that empty, unfulfilled, painful way of life and has brought you into His grace freely by what Christ has done? Doesn't it make sense as you look to the future and where the death where sin will ultimately take the person who refuses Christ. Do you really want to go there, or doesn't it make sense that you would give your life every day, every moment, to be a slave of righteousness? That's the argument that he is driving home here. Folks, let me just speak to those that are not saved here this morning for a second. Would you picture yourself on your deathbed? You're in the final moments of your life, and you are about to take the step over the threshold of death right into the throne room of the Holy God. In that moment, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be fondly remembering all of the pleasures of the vices of sin at that moment? Are you going to be thinking about how good of a time that you had? Or are you going to be thinking about the time that you're about to have? Are those Pleasures of sin going to have any attraction or any fondness in your memory as you are taking the step into eternity. Or are they going to shudder through you down to the very core of your being as you step trembling into the presence of the Holy God? What about you? Not just the non-Christian, but the Christian, those who are living on this earth, pursuing the riches of this earth and the things of this earth that it can provide. You know what those are going to seem like when you stand there? before the holy god of glory they're going to look like rags what about those that lived in the pursuit of power or position or title isn't that going to seem grossly inappropriate As you stand before the omnipotent God of the universe. Yeah, I got my title. Folks, here's the point. If we could live our lives with the view of that day, with the view of eternal things, it would radically change what we would do in the day to day. That's the point. Paul is so clearly making here as he is leading us and instructing us to live holy, righteous lives. just, Just think about what's true, not what you just see with your eyes. Remember, you're not just what you see. You're a spiritual, eternal being. Think about what is true for all of time. Oh, how our perspective would change martin lloyd jones an incredible expositor of the word of god of another generation said it like this would to god that we would view things now as we shall surely view them on the final day we shall surely view them that way on the final day oh that we would view them that way right now I want to close by giving you two statements. Worship team would you come? Two statements. Two statements that I know beyond the shadow of a doubt you are not going to hear on that final day. Two statements that are not going to be coming off the lips of anyone standing before God's judgment seat. Two statements that are not going to be appealing to anyone on that final day. And here are the two statements taken right from Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. No one is going to be saying that. Verse 15, let us sin because we are not under law but under grace. No one is going to be saying that on the final day. There's going to be a radically new perspective. We're going to see sin for what it is. We're going to see things of value for what they really are. And so what Paul is driving home here is that we need to apply ourselves and think and remember and reflect upon the truth that we know, even though we can't see it with our physical eyes. We need to keep that in front of us because the key to living a holy life is is understanding these spiritual truths. It's understanding who we are in Christ and what we've been delivered from. It's seeing things from a heavenly perspective instead of an earthly perspective. So what I'm encouraging you to do is run that through. Keep that in front of you. We're going to look at the positive side next week in verses 22 and 23. Would you please stand? I want to close with a prayer here. I want to invite you. If you are here and you would say, I am not a follower of Christ and I am thinking about my eternity and I am not ready to die. If that's what you're saying, then here's what I'm saying. Just get ready right now. Get ready right now because Jesus Christ is here right now offering you His eternal forgiveness eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't bring one bit of merit to cancel out even one of your sins. You have to come guilty as charged, deserving hell, and come to Christ and say, I want what you died to make possible. I want your forgiveness and the grace of God And if you'll put your faith in who Jesus is, the very Son of the living God, who came to die for your sin and rose again to defeat death and hell, if you'll put your faith in Him and what He did for you on the cross. Your destiny is settled. Your sins are wiped clean, something you could never do. And your future is secure. And then what you need to do is not stop there. That's just the first step. Then you begin to live a life of holiness. You begin to grow in the grace of God. With your eyes fixed on eternity. And your heart full of the reality of who you are in Christ. We pray for you. Father. Lord I I'm grateful for your truth I'm grateful for the courage of your truth to say what we need to hear not what we want to hear I am glad that you warned us about an eternal reality called hell Jesus, I'm glad that you talked about hell more than you talked about anything else so that we would not go there. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to make a way for us to get to God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. Your word says that if we believe in our heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, confess that, believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. It says a few verses later there in Romans 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh God, let those in here that need to have the faith to believe in your Son and to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, to get their eternal destiny settled right here, right now. And then, Lord, give us the power of your Holy Spirit as believers to live in the victory that you have made possible and stop caving to sin. Christ's name I pray.